man. All right. So we're going to be picking up where we left off in Judges, uh, chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 8. Let me make sure I time it. Uh, so Judges, chapter 1, verse 8. Um, and I'm just going to read uh, through verse 21, and then we'll just kind of break it down. So, um, yeah, we'll just pick it up from there. So starting in verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arva. And they defeated Sheshai and Ammonai and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. And she went to him, and she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite Moses, father-in-law, sorry, the descendant of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah to the city of the Palms, to the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah, and they devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jezubites who lived in Jerusalem, so that the Jezubites who have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So this is... Uh, very similar to what we were going over last time. Uh, so we're going to kind of pick it up, and I want to remind you of where we came from so that we can pick it up here this week, which I left you with this question. Um, where do the people begin to go wrong? Where do you see their faithfulness kind of start to unravel in this point? And if you're just paying attention as we, as we read through that text, the, the verse that should pop out to you right away is verse 19, close to the end there, uh, where it says that the Lord is with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. So that's the first evidence that we see of the people beginning to go wrong. But before we take that dark turn, and we'll, we'll kind of close our time there, um, I want to highlight a little bit more of the, the faithfulness and the trajectory that you see earlier on in this text. So verse 8 is really part of the previous section of faithfulness that we see uh, really starting in verse uh, 5. You know, God give, God's giving victory to the people, and then we see that God is consistently delivering justice as the people go forth. Uh, you remember we, last week we talked about Adonai Bezek and how he gets justice from the Lord in terms of his punishment. And here in verse 8 we see that the men of Judah go against Jerusalem. So this is Jerusalem before it's Jerusalem, before the people own it. So now it's a Canaanite city. Um, and they capture it, they strike it with the edge of the sword, and then they set the city on fire and burn it. And presumably at some later date, they repossess the city. And so I, I want you to, to notice a few things. One is that this is kind of the evidence of their faithfulness is the, the kind of pragmatic follow-through of destruction. And the, the way we know that is because as soon as you stop seeing these kinds of terms is as soon as you start seeing the people settle for 
living with the Canaanites and kind of getting in bed with them and quite literally marrying and having children with them. So I want to point to you uh, to a cross-reference that is helpful to wrap your head around as we, as we kind of see this language. So I, I, just want you, I just want to highlight the language again. They capture the city, they strike it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Okay? And then I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. If you remember uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel at all, uh, you'll remember in 1 Samuel 15 is when Saul finally gets his kingdom stripped away from him. This is kind of the last straw of the king. And the basic premise of what happens in 1 Samuel 15 is Saul is commanded to go against uh, this foreign group of people, and he's commanded to commit all of them to destruction, including their sheep. And so this, this comes from, from the Lord, starting in verse 2 of chapter 15. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote it to destruction. All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. So the destruction, the burning of the city, the, the committing them to destruction is an utter, complete, nothing gets spared. And then Saul goes to battle, uh, and you can kind of see what happens if you just skip down with me, and you see in verse, uh, where am I at? In verse uh, 13, Samuel comes to Saul, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said to him, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering of the oxen that I hear? I want to highlight that because Samuel doesn't care if he kept any people alive. He's saying even leaving the sheep and the oxen alive is a, is a direct evidence that you disobeyed the command of God. So the command is this utter destruction. And then Samuel, his first evidence that he cites against Saul is he hears the bleeding of sheep and he can hear the oxen essentially feeding on the grass. And he's saying that's enough. And from there on, Samuel prophesies that the kingdom is going to be stripped away from Saul. So that is a practical way in which we see unfaithfulness played out. And so here we can see that the Israelites are being faithful by actually committing the city to destruction, destroying it with the sword, and destroying it with fire. And that teaches us something very practical in our life today, which is sometimes faithfulness looks like a very practical removal of sinfulness, right? The, the people of Israel are engaging with a people group that worships false gods, that is going to lead them astray if they keep them around. And so faithfulness isn't very complicated. It's actually very direct. And the question is, are they going to follow through and actually follow up with this? So uh, they're addressing a spiritual problem, which is idolatry and, and blasphemy of God and worshiping false gods, but they're addressing it in a very practical way. And we can learn from that, that, you know, spiritual battles that we engage in in our regular life you can engage in them practically. You know, you can fight very practically against the forces of darkness and evil by committing things to destruction, by, uh, by taking very practical steps and measures to put those things away. So that's something we can learn from what the people of Israel do here. But that's really a continuation from where we were at last time. Uh, if we turn then to verse 11 of this section, we get this kind of story between verse 11 and verse 15. And this is uh, God establishing Othniel, uh, who's going to also be later the first judge of Israel. So after this introduction section is concluded, Othniel is raised up to be the first judge in the book of Judges. So we see how he gets established. So Caleb says, He who attacks this city that they're going for, Kiria Sefer, and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the, Ke- Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captures it, and then Caleb follows through and gives him his daughter as a wife. 
And this might bring to mind something similar that happens between Saul and David, where Saul says, if David wants to marry my daughter, he has to bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. So the Philistines are the enemy of the people. They have to go out and essentially win victory. And this is evidence for Saul that David has the favor of the Lord that he's blessed. And so I want you to see the, the practical question that Othniel here has to address and that Caleb asks. So this is not just Caleb saying, my, my daughter's a bargaining tool, go into the city and I'll give her to you. You know, it's not like she's the spoil of war. Caleb's actually doing a very careful selection of a person who's actually fit to marry his daughter. And you can see this out in a few ways, right? The first thing is that going into the city and actually winning it and capturing it is a sign that God is in favor with the person who's going in and capturing the city. Routinely in scripture, we see that the victory belongs to the Lord. So if God gives victory over to people, it's usually a sign that they have some kind of blessing or some kind of favor with God. Not always, but very often. And in this case, when God has commanded them to go out into the land, you can correlate a victory with God's blessing and God's favor on this person. So it, separate, it separates the blessed from the rest of the group, right? The other thing that you see is that it separates people who are going to be good protectors from people who are just there to maybe swoon his daughter and take her away, right? Othniel has proven by virtue of this victory that he's willing to do difficult things in obedience and faithfulness to the Lord in a way that's very practical and simple, right? All of Israel knows what is supposed to happen but there's only certain leaders who can go forth and actually carry out the action, right? So Othniel kind of classifies in that, in that category. You see it separates people who are faithful from the people who are faithless because Othniel here will be contrasted later with the people of Judah going up and not completing their victory. And fr- frankly, it also separates the men from the boys. Othniel leads this charge into the city and takes it. And so you can kind of see that Caleb's kind of question is not necessarily... Uh, like a, he's not using his daughter as a bargaining tool. What he's doing is he's using uh, this as a, a sifting to test out who's actually worthy of marrying his daughter, who's actually going to be a fit husband for her, right? And this will remind you of Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, verse, or sorry, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through six, where it's hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Caleb is proving, or he's testing Othniel and saying, Are you up to the task to love the Lord your God faithfully with everything that you have, right? And then what's what's interesting is in the second half of this story, Aksha goes to Caleb and very practically secures a source of water so that they can raise a family. So while the men are at war and they're kind of worrying about the conquest of the land, she says, you know, very practically speaking, we need water to survive and to establish a family here. So she goes to Caleb, her, her father, and she secures like a source of water, which is important you can go. No, I'm good. Um, <laughs> she, she goes and she establishes the source of water. And so she is kind of completing the second half of that Shema, which is uh, verses seven through nine, where it says, and not only are you going to do this to be faithful to the Lord, but also you're to raise your children in this. And you can't raise children if you don't have a home and you can't have a home without access to water. And so she's establishing essentially her side of the second half of that covenant. So now Othniel and Aksha are agreeing that they are covenantally responsible to raise the next generation. And in her establishing this land, Othniel can grow old and be there to be the first judge of Israel when the time comes for that. So her practical practical faithfulness and his practical faithfulness are evidences for us that faithfulness is not necessarily some theological pie in the sky. Remember, faithfulness is simple, it's just not easy. You have to go and you have to fight and you have to secure And both of them act in such a way that proves that they're being faithful to the promises of God to go into the land, to raise children, to be faithful. And so that takes us then to uh, verse 16. 
which is God's faithfulness to Jethro. So we've seen God establishing Othniel. We've seen God uh, delivering justice to all the other nations. Now we see God is going to establish Jethro, or God being faithful to Jethro. And Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. So when Moses flees Egypt, he meets this guy Jethro. He marries his daughter. Jethro takes care of Moses. And then later, after Moses leads the people out of Egypt, Jethro is a person who he links back up with. And Jethro is actually the person who commands Moses to not be the sole leader, but actually to distribute his leadership out and to delegate responsibilities and tasks to, I think it's 70 other people over the nation of Israel. And, what Mo- and then Moses, when they're leaving and they're going to go towards the promised land, Moses asks Jethro to come with them. And Jethro says, no, I'm going to go back to my home, my security. And Moses says, whatever the Lord does to us, he'll do to you. If he's faithful to us, he'll be faithful to you and you'll share an inheritance with us. And so what's, what's interesting about this is this is kind of an initial sign or initial evidence that the people of Israel were always supposed to kind of be the light to the nation. So Jethro is a non-Israelite who kind of gets brought in with the covenant community and gets kind of grafted in initially. So he's a, he's a non-Israelite, a non-Jewish person, and he's going to now obtain the same promises that were promised to the Israelite people. And so that goes not only to him, but also to his descendants. So his descendants are the Kenites, and they go and they move right alongside where the people of Judah move into. And the people of Judah, that's the biggest tribe in the nation of Israel. So they move in, and they're not dumb. They're going to go right where the powerhouse is, and they're going to move right next to these people, right? So you see a very practical, um, God being very practically faithful to them. And you also see uh, they're, they're going to kind of link up with the people who they know are the strongest. Judah's leading the charge. They've been responsible for this conquest so far. And they, they move, and this is just kind of a, an interesting reference. When it says the city of Palms there, um, that's referring to the city of Jericho. So the city of Palms is Jericho. You can see that in Deuteronomy 34. It's another cross-reference, but this is not like new areas or new cities. This is just a reference to a city they've already conquered in the book of Joshua. And then we see in verse 17 that Judah goes with Simeon, his brother, and now they're going to continue the conquest. So at first, remember earlier, we see that Judah is tasked to go ahead. And in verse 3, Judah asks Simeon to come with him and to help him battle, right? And we talked last week about how this is kind of painting for us a picture that even though God tasks Judah with something, he doesn't say you have to do it in isolation. He says you can bring your brothers alongside you and, you know, have them help you. The, the, the purpose of having clansmen is so they can assist you in this process, right? And then you see that Simeon does the same thing. When, when Simeon goes, Judah goes with him and they conquer their territory together. So they're kind of reciprocating that favor that they were establishing earlier. So this is again evidence of faithfulness because Judah does it and then Simeon does it. And we see that this is kind of like all positive, all uphill. And the, the, thing, the word I want to point you to is uh, right there in verse 17. Uh, it says, They take the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and they devoted it to destruction, which is the same kind of language that you see in verse 8. They're destroying it, they're burning it, they're putting it to the sword. They devote it to destruction, which means they're not settling, they're getting rid of everything that could possibly defile them. And then that leads us to kind of a turning point in this process, which uh, you will see there in verse 18, it kind of starts. So Judah captures Gaza with its territory. It captures Eschatalon with its territory. And it captures Ekron with its territory. And all of these lands are captured, and these are all Philistine territories, okay? So all these lands are captured. By the way, this capture is very short-lived because shortly after in the book of Judges, you actually see the Philistines operating back out of these cities. So it's a very short-lived capture. And then in verse 19 is kind of the the downturning, and this is when you see God's commandment being disobeyed. And the Lord was with Judah, and he, Judah, took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And I want to ask you a question, which is, 
that reasoning given, because they have chariots of iron, I want to contrast that with the fact that the Lord says he's with them, right? Earlier in that same verse, it says the Lord is with them. That's the same way that the Lord is with them in verse 2. The Lord's still being faithful to his end of the bargain. And it looks like to us that they relent from their campaign. And they relent because chariots of iron. Now that's interesting because there's a lot of scripture that we could point to. The first one being earlier in this chapter where the Lord says, I've already given you victory over all these peoples. And now they bump into chariots of iron and they go, ooh, new information did God know about this beforehand or was he not aware? And now that he's aware, I'm sure he'll be okay with us settling. That's the first kind of way you can think through this, right? It's not like God was unaware that these people had chariots of iron. God's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's all powerful, right? So now you're putting an omnipotent God in his promise up against chariots of iron, you know, which to them is like, to be fair, it's a pretty strong military advancement, but I mean, it's chariots of iron, right? If you think just back a couple hundred years in their history, or actually just 40 years in their history, you can remember where they meet Pharaoh in Egypt, no weapons, they're being led out of Egypt, and God drowns the entire army of the Egyptians in an ocean. And they have no weapons, no warfare, and God still delivers them, right? So they've so quickly moved beyond God's faithfulness then, God's continuous faithfulness in this conquest, that they go, chariots made of a different material, now this is a problem. We, we're going to have to settle. And then they back up from their campaign. And there's another thing that you can look to, which is uh, Psalm 20, David reflects, and he says, some trust in chariots, we trust in the Lord our God. So that's Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, we trust in the Lord our God. Basically saying, military power is great, but military power is not all that there is, right? In Psalm 68, uh, the psalmist reflects and says that the Lord our God has myriads and myriads of chariots that he commands. The point being, he's powerful, and he's more powerful than anything this world can throw at him. So we contrast that with the lived reality that Judah, who's leading the charge, right? We see the Lord goes with him. This is Judah leading the charge, and Judah compromises, okay? So now that the leader has compromised, the leader has been disobedient, the leader who the Lord said he would go with has settled, what you're going to expect to see and what you will see is that all the other tribes kind of fall in line and begin settling as well. So Judah settles. And then I'm going to skip over verse 20 real quick and go straight to verse 21. And the people of Benjamin you see settle, and they allow the Jezebites to live in the city. And then we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but verse 22, basically through the end of the rest of chapter 1, is all just kind of an itinerary of exactly in what ways the rest of the tribes of Israel settled. But it starts with Judah. So in the same way that the conquest goes forward with Judah and it's initiated, the settling and the compromising begins also with Judah. And this is a theme that you see in scripture where kind of the leader of the people sets the pace and their faithfulness kind of produces a generation of faithfulness after them, as with Joshua. But also their unfaithfulness produces a generation of unfaithfulness after them as well. And so you kind of see that initiated here with the tribe of Judah. Now, before we kind of close and bring this to a, to a wrap, um, verse 20, you see Hebron is given to Caleb. So he kind of parenthetically jumps out and he says, Hebron is given to Caleb. And as Moses said, and then Caleb drives out the three sons of Anak. Now, the three sons of Anak, those are giants, okay? So these are people that are living in the land that are, essentially, if you want to think of a case example of this, you can think of Goliath of Gath. He's a descendant of the, of the people of Anak, okay? So the Anaks are a giant group of people. And then the, the reason that this is parenthetically in here is because verse 20 kind of wraps up something that has started way back when, when Israel first investigates the promised land, Hebron is the country that they come to and they say, 
they re- those, all the spies report back and say, we actually can't take on these people. There's giants in the land. They got great stuff, but they're tall. So we can't take them on. So this kind of concludes for us that even though the faithfulness is begin- the unfaithfulness is beginning with Judah, what you see is that still there's some amount of faithfulness, there's some momentum carrying them forward, and they actually wrap up by conquering Hebron, something that started way back when. Their initial inability to conquest Hebron is what starts them wandering in the wilderness and waiting for that generation to die before they can enter in the promised land. And so now they complete something that was started back in the book of uh, Exodus, right? When they first engage in the promised land. And uh, Caleb uh, is the one who is kind of responsible for this. Um, But that kind of, that momentum carries, but you see that momentum doesn't carry them very far because basically the rest of the verses that you'll see in the rest of chapter one all kind of trend in this negative direction of settling. And so then this brings us to um, kind of the question that I asked initially, right? In what ways or where do you see them first begin to compromise? And at first you see that uh, in verse 19. Um, But then there's another way that I want to ask the question and then we can kind of open it up for discussion, which is um, in what ways do they settle? So not where do we see them settling, but what does their settling exactly look like? And then you can kind of take the question one step deeper, right? So if their settling looks a certain way, what can we learn about their settling and in what ways do we also settle in terms of promises that the Lord has given us, victories and commandments that we're given, and in what ways do we begin to settle in the same way that the people of Israel settle? And that's kind of a, a good way for us to kind of wrap this up and open this up to discussion because although the book of uh, Judges is about the people of Israel, there are lessons to be learned and applied to our lives with regards to faithfulness, with regards to obedience, and just regards to with like practical Christian living in terms of what God has said and the lived reality of the everyday. And so, yeah, I think we can just close up there and then open it up for questions.